Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series Authentic, a study on the book of James. We're going to pray in a second, but um, just to let you guys know a couple things. This was a uh, rough week for some in, in our body. Um, just had a couple of folks lose several families that lost the same person, brother, uh, brothers and sisters, but lost a mom this week, lost a grandmother, um, uh, maybe uncle, an aunt, uh, and that, that was one day. And then another, just kind of another situation where one of our uh, younger families who had been coming for a couple months now uh, lost her husband, 35 years old, uh, little six-year-old and three-year-old um, children. And so uh, just a tough week as a body. Um, and uh, at the same time, yesterday, we had a wedding of one of our guys on staff, our, one of our worship leaders, Blake, who got married to his beloved Amber, and they're off somewhere now. Uh, so um, just the ebb and flow of life where there's struggles and downs and there's great celebrations, and as a body, we weep with those who weep, and, and we celebrate with those who celebrate. And, and, and let me be honest, I was really proud of, of some of, of y'all on some of the service teams and some of the community groups. You rocked this week. Um, you did a great job on and doing what the body does. They were well ahead of me. I'm finding things out like a week later. I'm like, oh, good. But that's the way it's supposed to be. And and just as an encouragement to some of y'all who've been coming for a little bit now and um, have, are kind of, you know, well, maybe get plugged in one of these days soon. Uh, don't wait. Because you don't know when that, that hard time comes or when that, that struggle comes. And if you're not connected to the body in any way, what happens is you get angry and upset because no one knows and... You don't know anybody, and, and that's a hard time, and the body's meant to walk through those things with people, uh, and, and so, look, you're, you're never going to find a community group of perfect people. In fact, you're going to go to a group and be like, I'm going to hang out with these folks, <laughs> but that's the point. Um, you're never going to get a service team with everyone who agrees in everything that, you know, you might think or do, but, but it, it's an important thing for, for, for that to take place, and as the body grows, uh, it's, just, it's just a vital part of encouraging each other and knowing each other, and so... Um, and so the body can function because the pastoral staff and the elders, we're not, there's not that many of us, and, but there's almost a thousand of us if we're all connected to at least somebody, there's, there's some life-giving strength and gifts and help. And so, um, so just encouragement to you guys that way. Um, we're going to pray just for those who've been just impacted this week, uh, but also pray for our time in the Word. But I want you guys to know that we do have a care team. If you're like, you know, I, I can make meals at a moment notice where I can go sit by someone in a hospital, you know, email the church and, and, or call the church and we'll get you on there. But if you volunteer for the care team, that means you could be called at a moment's notice. So just have that casserole ready, you know, kind of thing. Because it usually happens at three o'clock and we need a meal at five or we need someone here this time or go to this place. And, and so uh, we need people to, to be on that. Um, at the same time, they need to be kind of ready like the Rangers, like to go right quick, right? So we need you to be able to do that. So let me pray. Um, and then we'll jump into the word. Heavenly Father, you are good to give us your spirit that we might uh, build each other up and equip each other and love on each other and not solve problems or give answers necessarily, but just be there for each other. And I thank you for how that works. I thank you for the encouragement that that gives and the consolation even in hardship. And so I just pray for our church that as we grow numerically that there would be depth of relationships somewhere, that there would be a, a pursuit of others and, and a serving and a loving one another. Um, I thank you uh, that I saw that this week firsthand. I, I pray for those who this week have, it's, just, it's been a hard week 
struggles, loss of a, of a beloved one, uh, expected or not, it, it, it doesn't make the wounds uh, go away. But we know and hope in the resurrection, and we know that because you rose, Lord Jesus, that we will rise and that we have hope because of what you have done. And so that's where we go uh, for our consolation. That's where we go in the cross and in the empty tomb. Um, as we jump into the scripture, uh, again, Lord, I just ask for your grace and mercy to, on me to one more time this morning proclaim uh, just this word that James penned for us by your spirit. It is a challenging word. It is a uh, beneficial word. But through a broken man like me, it's emptiness apart from you. And so I just ask for your spirit to fill me, uh, that you'd give our people, our folks, ears to hear and open our eyes to the truth of your word, that the church might be built, equipped uh, for the work of ministry. And so I, we, we can't do that apart from you, so I ask that you would do it through us, Lord Jesus, for your name's sake. Amen. Thanks. You guys can have a seat. All right. James chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. There should be one in front of you. You can grab it. I think we're on page 654 or 5 in that one. Um, James chapter 2. I, uh, as you find that, I came home this, this past week and walked up the stairs after a long day at work, and I, I look in the door. We got one of those doors with the window on it, and I looked down the little hallway as, as I was about to open the door, and I saw white, just foam everywhere, white little pieces of styrofoam just everywhere. It was the blizzard of 2014 for real. I mean, it was just everywhere, and, and I just stopped for a minute, and I didn't see anybody. I didn't see anything. I just thought, Milton. Milton, right, it's like Newman, Newman, it's Milton, right? And I didn't see him, but I saw his work. I saw his handiwork, and so I go in the house, and he's cowering over in the corner, and my wife says, yeah, he got into this, and he, he got into one of those stamps, you know, this, so he had red from like all on his arm here, and it was all over everything. He's just kind of cowering with his guilty look in the hall. Now, I didn't see him, but I saw his mark. I saw his work. Right? And I was reminded of that as I'm studying this text this week. James is going to probe the question, if something can't be seen, can it still be seen? If something's invisible, can it still be visible? Right? Can, it, can it leave a mark? Right? And James is what he's going to say is, you know what? It can and it, and it has to. It has to. And he's going to talk about something that's invisible, faith that is visible. How do you see it? Right? How do we know faith is real? How do, you, how do you know Milton exists? I could be making that up, right? I could just having funny dog stories. I actually have a picture, so you know I'm not lying. There's Milton. <laughs> there's, his, there's his red stain, there, okay? There's the stamp, there's the guilt, the shame, there's repentance on his face, all right? Okay? So he does exist, right? But even if he didn't exist... You could walk into our house and see. I mean, even if you didn't see him, you could walk into our house and you could see, right? Well, that's what James is gonna say about faith today. And he's going to contrast in this text, what does genuine, real, authentic faith look like? How do you see it? And on the flip side, what does dead faith look like? What does empty faith look like? It doesn't exist. What does that look like? That's what he's going to answer for us today if we look, as we look at James 2. We're going to look through 14 to 26. 
Um, and he's gonna be real, real honest and open. Here's dead faith, boom. Here's authentic faith, boom. And if you've been here for a while, you, or your first time, here's kind of where we've been. We've been kind of working our way slowly through this book. This book was written by Jesus' little brother, right? He's got the same mom, Mary, different fathers. Jesus doesn't have an earthly father, born of a virgin. James, his father, is Joseph, right? And, and he, when he was a teenager, when he was growing up, he didn't believe his brother. He thought he was a, a wacko. He was a skeptic. But after the resurrection, he comes to have faith that his brother is Messiah, that he is God. And now he is leading the church in Jerusalem, several thousand people. And he's writing to this group of Christians, these, these Jewish Christians who have been scattered throughout Palestine, because of their faith or they've been persecuted and, and they're struggling as they walk through life and he's giving them encouragement. But he's been really talking about and fleshing it out. What does it look like? What does authentic, real faith look like? How do you see it? And that's really what the book's been about. And this is kind of the climax of that argument here in the entire book. This is kind of the, the summary of the whole deal. Here's authentic faith. Here's dead faith, right? And so we're gonna jump in and see it this morning. Two things about each. And before we do, understand, I gotta, I gotta say this up front and, and you'll know why later, but if you ask James, how does a person get to heaven? James would say this. You believe that my brother died on a cross for your sins in your place and rose again. That he was your substitute, that he absorbed the wrath of God and he rose again. And through faith, by grace through faith, you are saved. He would affirm that absolutely and the reason I say that is because there's some who will attack this portion of Scripture and say, ha, 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 James and Paul disagree. Look what he says, ha, ha, ha. But what you have to understand is, and we'll get into it in a few minutes, they don't disagree at all. They're friends. James was, was Paul's pastor at one point. James wrote his letter before Paul ever wrote any of his letters. Paul knows about James's letter. He's read it, probably taught from it. They're not contradicting one another but they are talking about two completely different things. And they're talking to two completely different audiences. And that's why those who attack the scripture don't understand what they're saying. And so we'll get into that, but understand that when Paul talks, he's talking about justification and faith before God. When James is talking, he's saying, what does it look like when that's flushed out? What does it look like when, when you live your faith out? And so there's, there's where the disagreement, so to speak, is. But both would affirm that salvation is by grace through faith alone. But what James is going to show and argue is that, that faith is never alone if it's genuine, all right? So let's jump into the text. Milton, verse, okay, here we go. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things that's needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you wanna be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 
And so he contrasts dead faith, authentic faith. And you can't miss his point. He says it four times. But he opens with this great probing question. What good is it? What good is it, my brothers, if someone, and here's the key word, says. Someone says he has faith but doesn't have works. Now, works for James and Paul are two different things. When Paul talks about works, he talks about someone who's trying to earn his salvation by the law. That's what Paul's talking about when he uses the word works. He uses it in a negative way. James is using it as in a positive way. He's not talking about obeying the law. What he's talking about is the fruit from faith, the, the good works we've been talking about, caring for the vulnerable, being a doer of the word, loving others. Those are the works he's talking about. So Paul's using it negatively. James is using it positively. And he says, what good is it if someone says, I'm a Christian, I, I believe, I ask Jesus in my heart, I walked the aisle, I raised my hand when everyone had their eyes closed, but they really didn't because they were looking, but I raised my hand, right? I did that, but he does not have any proof of that. There's, there's no, no evidence in his life. There's no fruit. There's no works. He says, cannot faith, that kind of faith is the idea. Some of your translations say such a faith. The article is there in the original Greek. It's that kind of faith, the faith that doesn't have any works. Can that kind of faith save him? And the implied answer from the Greek text is nope. It can't because it's dead. He says, Here, here's an example. A brother or a sister, i.e. someone you know, someone that's close, someone in your church, someone in your community group, whatever. A brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them in the holiest voice you can come up with, go in peace. Thou wast be warm and filleth. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The idea is you, some, there's so many, you, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we had the blizzard of 2014 and it was 33 degrees and cloudy and everything was going crazy, remember that? All right, and you drive through the neighborhood and the kids are, are out in the neighborhood and you see them shivering because they're just wearing shorts and, and a t-shirt and they don't have a jacket or somebody in your community group, you know, they, they kind of lost their job and they, they kind of need some money for groceries or you, got, you know there's a college student and that college student doesn't have anywhere to go for Thanksgiving or Christmas because they live out in Timbuktu and they don't have the money to fly back and so they're going to be eating, you know, ramen noodles on Thanksgiving and you know it or it's raining and you know that person needs to get to the south side and they rode their bike church, but you, you, know, you know they need to go that way, but it's a monsoon or something. You know, there's a need that you identify, and you walk up to them in, in the most spiritual way you can. You put your hand on their shoulder, brother, sister. God loves you. Let me pray. Lord, we pray for this little kid that's cold. Boy, this blizzard's bad out here. It's 33 degrees, Lord. We know it. Provide a jacket for this young man, please. Provide a jacket. Amen. How you, okay, you good, Bob? Right? Okay, Someone in the community group, Lord, let's pray, for, let's pray for John and Joni because he lost his job and they don't have any food and they're, and they're starving. Lord, we pray that you would provide food for their family, amen. Amen, everyone, amen? Amen, ooh, yeah, right? Or, oh, we know this college student, Lord, they, they, need, they have no friends and they're all gone and, and you know, they're, they're gonna be alone for Thanksgiving watching the Santa Claus and the Macy Day Praise on their on the little TV alone and, we just pray that they would have a friend, that someone would invite them over. Someone would give this poor guy in the rain a ride. Pray for him. What good is that? He said, what, what, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Right? 
And, 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 and he uses this, notice he says, again, it says, and he says to them, circle it, there's the second time, he says, and he uses all this churchy language, peace, filled, warm, right? And we do that all the time. Don't you just want to hit that person? Really? Don't you want to hit that person? I mean, they're the kind of person, when everything's going wrong, well, when God, when God closes the door, he opens a window. Thanks, appreciate that. Can I smash yours? I mean, really. <laughs> When the world gives you lemons, just make lemonade. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Right? But it's that churchy language. And, and here's just a little side application. This is, this is me talking. Drop the churchy language. Really. If you come in and you start your King James version when you're talking and you're all bless this and whatever, no one talks like that. Really? Do you talk like that? Don't talk like that just because you come to church. It's fake. Paul, believe it or not, wrote in the everyday language. Did you realize that? When they wrote letters, it wasn't all like all of a sudden he turned on the Pauline language. It was just a normal letter. Peter speaks normally. James speaks very clearly. Jesus did not walk around speaking churchy. He used Aramaic and he spoke to the people in everyday language. It wasn't some different language for the church. And there shouldn't be here. This is just an extension of our lives. So, so just drop the, bless you, my, okay? Just, just, let's just be real. Be authentic, since that's a cool word these days. But that's the idea. But back to the thing. He says, what good is it if this guy's, bless my brother and be filled. When you got four jackets in the closet at home and this kid's freezing, what good is that? What, what good is it if you're inviting your whole community group over and they're having turkey on Thanksgiving and your whole family and cousins and you got turkey for a like, king for weeks and you leave the college student in his, in his dorm? What, what good is it? Right? What good is it if you got extra money, you got extra food in your thing, and this guy's starving, and you pray for his meal? Bless you, be filled. What, what good is it? If you got an empty back seat and an empty trunk that you can throw his stuff in and give him a ride home, what good is it? And the answer is it's no good. It's, it's empty. And so he says, he closes it. He says, so also, faith, if it's by itself, it, if it doesn't have those, those deeds following it, it's dead. It's useless. Kaput empty. Can't do anything. And that's the first characteristic of a dead faith. It's all talk. Talk, 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 talk. Bless you, bless you, bless you. Peace, grace and peace. Blah. It's all talk. Right? It's all talk. But it doesn't do anything. It can be stirred by emotion. It can be whatever. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't do anything, then it's not alive. It's like a guy, you know, guys walk into another guy's house and if he, this is a guy illustration. Sorry, ladies, you don't get this, but I don't have another one. So, Guy walks into a house in his buddy's house and this guy's got like a big 14 point deer on the wall. And we're like, whoa, man, that's awesome. Girls are like, that's tacky. Right? The guys are like, that's awesome, right? But, like, but how foolish would it be if we go like, man, let's, let's go take that puppy outside and ride it. Man, we could get the kids on that thing, it'd be great. We'll ride it around the neighborhood, we can get Santa Slay on that puppy. Man, it'd be great. Let's go do it, can we do it? Rah. That thing's dead. It's just for show. It's just for the wall. It's not alive. No, man, we could take it outside and it could go. We'll just put it out there and it'll run. No, no, it's dead. It's not alive anymore. I killed it. It's dead. But he's, that's the idea. If it's, all, if it's all talk, 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 talk. It's dead. It's just a, it's just a pretty, pretty thing on the wall or a tacky thing, depending on your thoughts. It's dead. What good is it? None. What good is it you keep telling your kids, love you, love you, love you. You spend time with them. You, you, you read to them. You, you tell them how much you love them. And you give them hugs. And you, you go to their games. And you, 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 
set apart time to, to be with them and listen to them and talk to them? No, no, I don't do any of those things, but I sure, I'll tell them. Tell them I love them every night. What good is it? You don't see it. What good is it? If you're, oh, I, I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist. I, I don't condone to know racism. I hate racism. But when this, you see this thing over here, it's like this, I, I don't want to deal with that. You know, that's their thing and they're wrong, but I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I mean, I, I don't want to deal with that. The office. What good is it? What good is it? I'm pro-life. Pro-life. I vote pro-life. I'm this pro-life. But then there's opportunities to serve in this, a Savannah Care Center, or there's opportunities to, to, to say something to someone who, who is on the other side and you, you say, hey, you know what? Every person is valuable, even in the womb, and that's what Scripture teaches. And and oh, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to talk politics. I don't want to offend them. So, so what good is it? What good is it when we, we bring folks up and we bring Joey from Allendale and he's telling you about how God's moved in him to go act, and we bring the kind of Chinskis and they're going to adopt this fourth kid, and we're like, well, that's great for you, but I'm pretty comfy right now. I don't need to. I don't want to do anything really. I mean, I know, yeah, I know we should take care for the vulnerable, and I'll, I'll pray for you that you would have a great trip to Ukraine and picking up your fourth child, right? He says, what good is it? What good is it? I've been at CBC for six weeks. Love the sermons. Woo! Cain's a great preacher. Bill, you're average. But Cain, he does a great job. You know, we need more of Cain. Love the sermons. Move. Got plenty of notes. We talk about it all the time. It's great. But kind of a year later, still kind of, yeah, I don't know if I'm really going to plug in anywhere. I mean, I don't really want to get to know anybody because then they're going to ask me about what Jesus is doing in my life, and oh, you know, and I, I know we're building a building, and it's crowded in here, and I, but you know, I, I just really don't want to, I'm trying to save up for that trip, you know, we want to go on that cruise, and you know, he said, what, what good is it if it's all talk? Parents, especially when your kids are at the house, your kids mean more than talk. You can talk all day, oh, love God, love God, but if they never see a parent who repents or they never see a, uh, who apologizes to them for when they lose their temper or when they, they're loving on their mom or they're praying with their spouse or reading the scriptures at any point. Or, I mean, you could talk all you want. If they look over and during the singing, you're like, oh, yeah, mom. But I want you to be a worshiper of Jesus. What, is, what good is it? Right? And that's what he's saying. That, that dead faith is all talk. It's all talk. And he expects a little opposition here, a little pushback. And so he says, he says, someone will say, and the, and the, the hard thing with some, some of your translations is here, there's no punctuation in the original Greek, okay? So editors are kind of throwing punctuation where they think, and I think the ESV gets it right, where the objector, the guy says, well, you have faith and I have works. And that's the idea. It's kind of like, you say tomato, I say tomato. This is your niche, that's mine. This is your direction, this is where you're gifted. You're a works guy. You're a practical guy. I'm a faith guy. And if we can just all get along and not judge each other, that's, the, that's okay, right? So it, it doesn't matter. That's good for you. That's good for me. Whatever. You have faith. I have works. And he says, no, no, the two are not mutually exclusive. This is where James comes in. He says, you show me your faith apart from your works. Can't do it. You can't do it. He said, I'll show you my faith by my works, I'll show you that it exists, not because you can see faith physically, but you can see the outworkings of it, and I'll show you by my life, right? And then he gives this example, and it's a pretty in-your-face example. I mean, James is like close talker real right here, all right? He's channeling his, inner bro- his brother when his brother got fiery. That's where James is right now. He says, you believe that God is one, 
And the sarcasm is just dripping here. It says, you do well. And the ESV kind of, you know, makes the literal, the idea, the New Living Translation says, good for you. <laughs> right? Good for you. I love that. I, was, I read this, I was studying and thinking about it, and it, my, in my sanctification process, I went back to Saturday Night Live, Chris Farley down by the river. And some of you are like, and so the kids, and David Spade says, I want to be a writer. And he says, well, Lottie, uh, da, right? And I'm like, that's James, Lottie, da, woo, golf clap, good for you. You believe. Well, that puts you on par with demons, demons, all right? The sarcasm is there. I'm a Trinitarian. I, I memorize the, the confession, the Apostles' Creed. I agree with CBC's doctrinal statement. Everyone golf clap. Right? Because that puts you on par with the demons. How'd you like that one at Lifeway? How to be demonic in your faith. Seven steps to demonic faith. That'll be a big seller. Right? And he's not saying that doctrine is bad. It's not saying that doctrine doesn't matter. It obviously does. Doctrine is, it, it matters. But just believing the facts does not change anything. Right? You can learn the facts. You can memorize them. Honestly, we could probably learn some good theology from the demons. They probably have better theology than most churches because they know who Jesus is. Many churches do not, right? They're, poly, they're not polytheists. Demons are monotheists. They believe in one God. They believe in the Trinity. They've seen Jesus. In fact, in the Gospels, it's very interesting, isn't it, that the disciples are constantly asking, who is this guy? And the demons are saying, we know who you are, son of the most high God. So who knows better? And then it says the demons believe, pause, and shudder. What's that about? Because they know the end game, don't they? The demons actually tell Jesus, have you come to destroy us before the time? You're not gonna cast us into the lake of fire now, are you? They know judgment is coming. Demons don't deny judgment. Christians sometimes do. People in churches will deny it. The demons don't deny it. They admit it, and they shudder. Who's got better theology? Who's got the facts? They do. Here's the second thing about dead faith. It's merely facts. It's actual. Just the facts. Those who were born before the 80s remember a show called Dragnet, right? Those you after, you don't know, wait, guy in there said, well, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. That, that's not it. It's not just the facts. You can pass a theological test 100%. Jesus, born a virgin, check. Son of God, check. Died on a cross, check. Rose again, check. Bible true, check. Check, 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 100%. You can believe just like the demons and spend eternity with them. Right? Agreeing with the facts does not save you because what's the difference? They believe, but they're still rebellious. They're still the enemies of God. They're still the minions of Satan. They rebel but they believe. Agreeing with the facts won't save you no, no more than going to church or getting baptized or paying your taxes or believing in the Easter Bunny. So, Paul, so James says this, do you wanna be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You wanna be shown? And I love James. James is that mom who's fired up. She asked the kid a question. What were you thinking when you did this? And the kid tries to answer, well, I was, be quiet, I don't wanna talk to you. Because he doesn't wanna hear from you. He's not, he's not really asking for you to answer. He's asking, for, do you want to be shown? No, not really. Well, you're going to be shown anyway. I'm, let me show you that faith apart from works is, is useless. It's not alive. 
And he's gonna do so by giving them two positive examples. He said, this is what it really looks like. This is what it looks like when it's flushed out. This is how you know it's real. And he's gonna give them two examples that are very, very familiar in, this, in these Jewish people's minds. They're heroes, Abraham and Rahab, right? Verse 21, he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, understand for, for some of you who know your scripture a little bit better, you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? How was he justified by works? I thought the apostle Paul said that he was not justified by works, that he was justified by faith. You're right, he did say that. He said Abraham was justified. If, if he was, he has something to boast about, but not before God. The idea is he wasn't. He was, he was justified by faith. So how can Paul in Romans 4 say Abraham was justified by faith and James is saying he was justified by works? Ha, 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 ha. Contradiction in the Bible. Ha, ha, ha. Right? Paul and James don't agree. Right? That's, that's where you're going to hear. College kids, that's what you're going to hear. Those who deny the scripture. See? Contradiction in the scripture. But see, what you have to understand is when we take the literal, grammatical, historical approach to Scripture, we understand that there's a different audience in mind. There's a different situation going on here where Paul is writing to this circumstance, James is writing to this. And we do this all the time in our lives. There's a different context for everything. So if I am coaching my daughter's 12-year-old girl volleyball team, I'm, I'm not the coach. I couldn't be the coach. But if I was, I would get them in the huddle and be like, okay, ladies, oh, your hair's cute. All right. Oh, your bow's off. Okay, yeah, go. All right, we're gonna go out there and we're gonna try hard and we're gonna communicate. You gotta be loud. Talk, talk to each other. Cheer one another on, support one another. You can do this. We're excited. We're gonna win this game, all right? We're gonna go out and do our best. Ready? Ready? Break. Go. Okay, good. They're gone. They go out and they're excited and they're going to play. I got a high school football team. I'm in the huddle. You are the sorriest group of men I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> your mom is ashamed of you. And your grandmother says, you cannot come to her house ever again. So you better get out there and you better whoop them. You better hit them like you mean it or else you're never going to eat again. You're going to be staying on the street tonight. You understand me, boys? Yes, sir. Let's go. Right. Go. Now, both have the same result. But what's going on? I'm talking to a different context. I'm trying to get the same thing done. Different context. That's, I mean, that's a simplified way of saying James and Paul, who is Paul speaking to in the book of Romans when he says this? He's writing to a group of people in Rome who aren't familiar with the Old Testament for the most part. And they're asking the question, what, what must I do to be saved? How do, how do I get to heaven? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to get baptized? Do I need to be circumcised? What do I need to do to be made right before God? How do I get to heaven? That's what they're asking. And he says, you can't do anything. You do nothing. Jesus did everything. He died on a cross. He lived your perfect life. He took the wrath of the Father on himself. You believe, you trust in what he has done. That's the audience he's talking to. James is talking to a bunch of folks who know all the answers, who know all the things. They grew up in the synagogue. They have it all. And they're thinking, I know it all, but their lives don't reflect it. And so he's asking the question, how do people know you really believe? How do you know? What does it look like when you believe? Two different audiences, but they're not contradicting each other. One is talking about in the court of God. How is one justified in the, in the vertical relationship with God? The other one is, how are we justified before men? How do they know that I've been justified before God? So they're really talking about the same thing, just opposite sides of the same coin. They're not contradicting one another. It would be foolish for Paul, who knows James, who knows he's the head of the church in Jerusalem, who has, everyone's got his letter to write a letter that says, oh, James was wrong. 
He's never going to do that because they're, they're on the same team and they believe the same thing. They're just talking to two different audiences. And that's, that's how you reconcile, which is not, not needed to be reconciled because they're friends and they're talking about the same thing. And he says, you, how do we know that Abraham was really saved? How do we know? How do we know he was justified? How do we know he was right before God? Right? That's what he asks. And he says this. Here's how we know. When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. If you're familiar with the Bible, you remember in Genesis 22, and we're going to look at this passage again this Easter, I believe, and so it's a great passage. But in Genesis 22, God says, I want you to take Isaac, your one and only son. That is the special boy. That is, I promised you a son. There he is. All the promises I gave you are going to come through that son, and I want you to take that son, and I want you to take him up on a mountain, and I want you to give, offer him as a sacrifice to me. That son. And what does Abraham do? Packs the car, and he heads off. And it says that he offered him, and the tense of the verb there is, is completed. So in Abraham's mind, the act of actually plunging that knife into his son's chest is done in his mind, even though God stops his arm and provides a substitute. How do you know Abraham really believed God? You see, faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. It was matured. You saw the outworking of his faith when he was about to kill his son. How did you see it? Because he knew that God promised that that boy was special. That was where all the promises were. He, he, he promised me that that was the child, that one right there. And now he's telling me to kill him. So in his mind, Hebrews says that he reconciled that, that God had to raise that child from the dead. If he killed him, he actually had to bring him back because he knew it was impossible for God to lie. He knew that that was the blessed one, that he was the promised one. So he is obedient even when he doesn't get it because he believed. And so the next verse says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But here's what's the coolest part about it. He quotes not Genesis 22, now he quotes Genesis 15, when it says Abraham believed God. What happened in Genesis 15? You can go back and read it, but Abraham's 80 years old and has zero kids at the time. And God shows up and says, I'm gonna give you so many kids, you can't count them. You're gonna be going crazy at Christmas because you can't even provide the Christmas presents for these kids. I'm telling you, you're gonna have more descendants and I'm gonna bless you. And Abraham's thinking, I'm 80 and have zero. I'm a, you better get started, God. But what it says next is that Abraham believed God when he had zero kids. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. His faith made him righteous before God. That was 30 years earlier from when he tries to offer his son. Genesis 15, he's 80 years old. In Genesis 22, at least 30, maybe more years later, that is when he's about to kill Isaac. How do I know that Abraham was considered righteous before God? I don't know it just because, because he says it. I know it because what he does in Genesis 22. He was already righteous before God in Genesis 15. When do we see it flushed out? When he's about to plunge a sword into his son's chest. That's when the work was seen. That was when he was justified before men. That's how I know his faith was real. Because let's be honest, he made some pretty dumb mistakes. I mean, we always go, oh, wasn't this great? Yeah, and he also let his wife be almost married to two other guys. That was not a high point. He also tried to take matters into his own hand. God says, I'm gonna have a kid. Well, I think I should have one with my maidservant. That's a great idea, yeah. Now we have the Arab-Israeli conflict because of that decision. So he wasn't always faithful but he was in these places. 
and it said he was called a friend of God. Why was he willing to put that sword into his son's chest? Because he believed God. Because he was made righteous here and it was flushed out in his life when he tries to offer him as a sacrifice. And that, that's, that's the way it is. Here, here's the first characteristic of authentic faith. We see it in Abraham. The authentic faith results in willful obedience, always. Not that you always obey, because again, Abraham didn't. Not that you always obey, because you don't. Because if anyone says he has not sinned, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But when, the, when your faith is genuine, there is at some point in your life willful obedience. If Abraham would have said, you know what, I believe you, God. I do, I believe you, but I'm not taking that kid up on the mountain and killing him. No way. Now, I'll take the guy across the street's kid up the street, up the hill, and take care of him. But I'm not killing my son, no way. You know what we would say? You don't believe? Right, you don't believe. And, and Jesus says it this way in the New Testament. His word's not mine. That my sheep hear my voice, and they, I know them, and they obey me. Right, if you're his sheep, there is some willful obedience, right? Not all, sometimes there's disobedience. And, and I'm not talking about going to church or morality. I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm talking about when the great shepherd speaks to his sheep, there's a, there's a following. There's a, a willingness to, to follow where he goes. And isn't it great that he says here, and Abraham was called a friend of God. How do you like that? We're always talking about who we know, right? Everyone, oh, I met the mayor. Woo, I saw this movie star down on Broughton Street. Woo, isn't that great? I know a friend who knows a friend who knows a friend who knows a friend who knows Han Solo. Now, that's something else. <laughs> but yeah, we always talk about who we know. How'd you like to drop this one at a party? Oh, I know God. He's my friend. That's what Abraham, friend of God. And here's what Jesus says. Here's how he says it. You are my friends when you obey me. Think about that statement. He tells it to his disciples, which by way of application to us. You're my friends when you listen to me. Contra that with the demons who know God, but they don't listen to him, do they? They rebel. The difference between a friend and an enemy is those who surrender and who are obedient. I'm not talking about, oh, tomorrow you move to Antarctica, let's go. Maybe that's it. But I'm just in the little things of life, is there little obedience? You wake up in the morning, you don't know what the day holds, but you know this, I'm going to go to work, and I don't even like my job. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you're just going to do a great job because you know it brings glory to Christ. You're going to love that neighbor who's annoying just because you know God loves you. You're going to pursue that which is pure and true and honorable and so when they send you that email that has that trash, you're going to delete it. Or when it's on the TV, you're going to, because those are the simple steps, the simple little things, right? I'm going I'm to pray for my kids, I'm gonna, I'm just, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be this radical, like, move to Antarctica. Maybe it is. Maybe there's some huge decision where God is asking an enormous amount of faith for you to walk away from this and go to this. And you don't know how the end game is, but you know God's calling you to do it. Or it seems that this group of men over here is saying, you need to do this. And you're like, well, I don't believe that. But these guys, you trust them or these group of gals or these, this relationship's not good. You need to, whatever it is. My sheep hear my voice. Right? My sheep hear my voice. 
Maybe for some of you, it's, you know, that whole baptism idea, don't like it. That water's cold. But that's the next step for you. I, I don't know. Because I know this. If you're continually stiff-arming God, if you are no, 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 there's an issue somewhere. Maybe it's disobedience, but maybe it's, there's not an authentic faith. Maybe it's lip service. Maybe it's, maybe it's information because my sheep hear my voice. Whether Jesus is speaking with a quiet, gentle spirit or gentle blowing or a megaphone, right? One of the signs of authentic faith, what does it look like? It looks like willful obedience. And again, don't, don't hear me out. I'm not talking about perfection. There's nobody perfect. You could start up here. But if there's never been any sort of desire to obey and follow this good shepherd, right? There's not life. He gives another example, right? One more quick one from Rahab, right? And she's, she's a famous woman for Israel. We looked at her a few months ago. In the same way, Rahab the prostitute, poor gal, she cannot drop the name. 3,000 years later, she still got it. Not Rahab, the great, 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 great grandmother of David. Not Rahab, the hero. She's still that, but that's all right. One day, right, we'll get to meet poor girl. But it says, in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? If you were here for our Joshua series, we talked about this. Here's this, this prostitute from Jericho, right? She's, she's a prostitute in Jericho, and these two Jewish spies come into the land, and what does she do? She hides them. And she tells them in chapter 2, verse 9 through 12, she says, I heard what, what God did. And she tells them, I have come to believe that he is the one true God, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God. I believe it. And I want him to save me. I want him to rescue me. When you guys come in in judgment, I want him to deliver me, please. Now, how do you know she really believed? Yes, she makes a confession. Yeah, I believe that he did it. I believe all these things. How do you know good old Rahab actually believed? Because she risked her life for those two spies. And when they said, okay, here's the deal. We're gonna leave. You wanna live? You gotta put this big old scarlet cord out your window. But everyone will see it. That's right. But that's how you'll know and we'll know that you've been faithful, and that's how you'll be protected. So what does she do? She gets that big old scarlet cord, and she wraps it outside her window, and she waits. She risked it all. How do you know she was justified? You don't know by just a confession. You know from her actions. And her faith was represented in what she did, right? And she sent the messengers out another day. And she was a different woman. She went from Rahab the prostitute to Rahab the Jewish woman who is the great-great-great-great-grandmother of David the king, who is the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus the Messiah. That's what happens. And she is a different woman. And here's, here's the, the last thing. Authentic faith produces life change always, 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 always. And there's many ways it's said in the New Testament, regeneration, being born again, being made new, being given a new heart, all those things. But it all is, in essence, this, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you are alive in Christ, that there is life change. And the reason there is is because the Holy Spirit of God cannot come into your life and not make you different. He just can't. When God comes into your life and he literally indwells you and you become the temple of the living God, there 
always is some sort of change. I'm not saying you're gonna grow four inches, you're gonna do this, but there will be life change of some sort. Not perfection, not until you die and go be with him or he comes first, but you will be a different person, right? There's gonna be a struggle, there's gonna be sin, but there'll be a new desires and there'll be new things on your radar that you wanna do because you were dead and now you were alive. And this is, this is so many of our story, right? I, you, you, we've heard your story and you've told it to us and we hear it. This was my story. I had demonic faith until I was 22 years old. I wasn't a roadie for Metallica or something, but my faith was intellectual only. Grew up in the church, knew all the right answers, got baptized to get my parents off my back, knew the scripture, memorized the books of the Bible, knew it all. Probably could find a lot of verses more than many Christians. But you know what? My heart was dead. I had no desire for the things of God. I didn't love the people of God. I didn't love God. I loved myself. And then one day, in the summer of 1996, I met a pretty blonde on the lake. I was getting drunk. She was just there. A bunch of mutual friends started talking. And somehow Christianity came up and said, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah. She's thinking, who is, this must be some sort of Yankee Christianity that I, I don't know. <laughs> she knew I was from Philly. But ended up starting a relationship with that gal who started bringing me to her church in Greenville, South Carolina. And at some point during that summer, I did marry her, by the way. So, but at some point during that summer, my eyes were open and the, inf the information I had went from here to here. Don't have a day, didn't walk the aisle July 4th. Don't have like a, I don't know the day I was saved, I'll be honest with you. But at some point in that summer, something happened, and the information that I had grown up hearing went from here to here. And the reason I know it is because my life started to change. I struggled with my mouth. I was called foul mouth fowler at the Citadel, earned that reputation. And God started to clean my mouth up. Stop. I just, that was a big issue, and it stopped. And I started getting loaded on the weekends. And I had weird new desires. I liked going to church. I hated going to church. I started, I pursued going to church. I started reading the scripture. I liked church picnics. That was weird for me. I, don't, I still don't like church volleyball at church picnics because that ain't real volleyball, all right? But I liked hanging out with Christians. In my long drives back and forth to see my now wife, I listened to sermons, me, I mean, Charles Stanley was like a life breath for me for those times in my life. Remember, just listen. Now listen to me, right? I just love some Charles Stanley. Now listen to me. I mean, it was great. Listening to Christian music. I, I, it was something new. Was there still sin? Yeah, but now there was a struggle, and my sin was not a delight to me anymore. Am I still sinning? Yes. Is there still transformation taking place? Yes, and there will be until the ultimate day of glorification. But there was a newness right? And that's, again, that's many of y'all's stories. And it's, it's kind of funny sometimes for some of us, and it's, is that you, you, sometimes you use language, yeah, well, I, I became a Christian at seven or 12 or 13, but, my, but my, I really started following Jesus when I was 25. We hear that a lot. And here's the reality, that's fine. But the reality is you probably got saved at 25 and not 12. And that's fine. I, we, we get to, it ain't going to keep you out. Oh, you got to stay outside for a week. You were wrong on the date. You know what I mean, <laughs> stay outside and play in the yard before you come into heaven. No, no, it's not the point. Most of us are probably wrong on the date anyway. But the point is when life change begins, that's usually when regeneration happens. Look at the Apostle Paul. He's murdering people. Now he's preaching to people. There's a, there's a, there's a distinction. There's not perfection, but there's a life change. 
right? And, and I say that because, look, if we have a lot of folks coming here on a Sunday morning, tons of folks, right? In fact, today is actually not the exact day, but for the Sunday, it's, it's exactly seven years today from the first day that I became pastor of CBC, seven years ago today, March 9th, I think it was, what's today? No, oh, today's the 9th, I think it was March 11th of 2007, all right? We started with 25 or so folks down to Johnny Harris. On a Sunday now, seven years later, run close to 1,000 on a high Sunday. But you know what? It doesn't matter. We got a lot of folks coming in that are believers. We got a lot of folks that are coming in that are not Christians, and that's great. We're glad they're here because they get to hear about Christ, and they get to hear the word, and they get to see Christians and, and interacting with one another. But every single one of us, all 25 back in the Johnny Harris Banquet Hall, every single person in this room, we will one day, we will one day stand before Jesus Christ, every one of us. Me, you, the mayor, the president, all the gold medalists from the Olympics, Peter, Paul, James, the brother of Jesus, will stand before his brother. What's up, brother? Right? <laughs> Don't think he'll say that. Sorry about that when you were 12, man. I didn't mean that, right? <laughs> but every one of us will stand before the living Christ. And what are you going to say? I'm just really. And one of the most sobering passages in all the scripture to me is Matthew 7, Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount. And he tells, he tells everyone listening there, just because you call me Lord, just because you call me Savior doesn't mean you enter the kingdom of heaven. He says many, 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 many will call me Lord on that day. And they'll say things like, well, didn't I go to church? Wasn't I baptized? Wasn't I a member? Wasn't I giving? Wasn't I in Bible study? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Didn't I do all these things? And I can't help but think with, with a tear in his eye and with sadness, Jesus will respond, depart from me, I, I never knew you. And I don't want anyone to come through these doors on a Sunday morning and think just because they come to this church or they've done something, that that, that makes you a Christian. Because nothing you do makes you a Christian. Nothing, you can't earn your salvation. Think about it, if you could earn salvation by doing good deeds, then Jesus doesn't need to die on a cross. He could just come down and say, just be good. Be good. Do these seven things and you'll get to heaven. He can avoid the cross altogether. No, he dies as a substitute to take our place and to rise again because we couldn't do anything. But those who understand that and who really believe, their lives are then changed. And if you're here this morning and you're, and, and you're, you're, the, you can, you're comfortable in your sin and you're, oh, the scripture says this, but I don't really care. It doesn't really mean that. I, I, if you're comfortable in whatever it is, and you're just explaining away, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. This is 2014, and the scripture, if, if you can do that constantly and just blow off what God has said, you might be one of those that says, didn't I go to church? Because my sheep hear my voice. And I don't want anyone here to be deceived I'm not saying you can earn your salvation, but I am saying what the Apostle Paul says, be sure of your calling and your election. And if there's never been a life change, there's never been a heart change, there's never been a desire, then you, prob you probably are trusting in info and not in the living Christ. And the difference is eternal. It's missing it from here to here. And I don't want you to miss because you knew the facts. I can believe intellectually a lot of things. I can believe that looks like a strong chair. I, I can sit in that chair. It's going to hold me up. Yeah, it's, it's strong. It's one thing to believe it. It is a completely other thing to say, I'm jumping. Right? It held me up. 
But that's the difference between information. Sorry about that, Bubba. That's the difference between information and trusting. Information stays on the stage and says, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. Trusting says, I believe it, and I'm jumping. And that's the difference. I don't know if I can get back, but I can certainly get here. There we go. (laughs) And that's faith. That's faith that works. I believe, God, that you're going to raise this child. I'm going to put a knife in his chest because I know. I believe that you're the one true God. I'm going to risk my life with these, these spies. I'm going to put this cord outside my window. I believe. And so we want to be a church. I don't want to be a church that just has numbers. I want to be a church where there's people who come and just respond to the word, and they go out and they, with willful beings, follow. Right? Who, who there's life change, and they're excited about it. Because look, what does he close? He says, just as the body is dead without breath, so faith without dead is dead without good works. I don't want any dead faith. Faith that, that lives and that loves and that worships and it responds. And when we fall, who confesses our sin and he is faithful and just to forgive us. That's it. And if you're here this morning and you're trusting in anything other than Christ, it's empty. Your best day, your best day is filthy rags. That's why Christ died. Put your faith in him. Church doesn't save, CBC doesn't save, reading your Bible doesn't save, getting baptized doesn't save, Christ saves those who realize that they can't save themselves. And that's what we want. So if that's you, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If you feel the spirit of God tugging and say, well, you know, this is you, he's talking to you. Don't, no, 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 God, I've been going to church since I was six, I'm good. That's the response. It's not the response you want, it's, oh, I'm trusting in this. I'm not trusting in you, right? And if you're a believer, rejoice in the fact that you are as secure as you will ever be because of what Christ has done. And now let's, let's get excited and go live out our faith in this community and beyond because that's what God wants us to do. Let's stand and let's pray and let's worship. Father, thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died. I, I just pray that your spirit would be moving in our midst and that you would open our eyes and that our faith would be real, that it would be seen, not so that we will be seen. We don't want to do it to be seen by men, but we want to do it because we want to glorify our Father who is in heaven, Lord. Um, I thank you for the security we have in Christ. I thank you that he purchased our salvation through his blood, and that he rose again, uh, proclaiming victorious over sin and death and judgment and Satan and everything. And so we put our faith in him, trust in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.